be speaking from the book of Jonah this morning. Uh, when Jesus was here, he spoke to his disciples and said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. They were probably curious about their bait. So one of the things that hopefully by the time this morning is over, we'll have an idea what's in our bait bucket. A couple things about me first. I was a high school teacher for 12 years, so I promise to have you out by the time the bell rings. I will hopefully have collected all the quizzes by then. We, we didn't get those printed? Never mind. Okay. And then also, uh, just to be honest, my name is Bob, and I'm a musician. Yeah. All right. If you would, uh, stand with me, please, as we read our very key verse for the day. Jonah 4, verse 2 says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity for me to come up and share my heart, really sharing your heart. And ask that you will bless as only you can bless this morning. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Thank you. The past few weeks, Pastor Sean's been taking us through a study of joy. And the Apostle Paul wrote about the attributes or aspects of spiritual fruit. Fruit being the result of abiding in the vine, as we're told in John 15. Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Notice he says, the fruit is. He doesn't say the fruits are. This is all part of the same fruit, the spiritual fruit. And love being the main aspect of it. The first one mentioned, and without the love, all these other fruit, well, it's kind of like plastic fruit in a bowl. You know, it looks nice, doesn't taste very good. It's actually just kind of chewy. Not good to eat. So what I want to do is take a look at this fruit of love, but from a slightly different angle today, uh, that being of love scorned, more accurately, a lover scorned. And spoiler alert, it's God. So before you start thinking, oh, we're going to have a hallmark moment gone bad, uh, set your minds at ease. It does resemble, resemble a hallmark moment from the standpoint of, okay, you write a card to somebody that you really love. You send the card. Then the moment kind of stops there because you get the card back. It says return to sender. and also says that the person that you sent it to left no forwarding address. Love denied. The moment is over. But I'd like to look, take a look at what I consider to be one of the major love stories in Scripture. We usually don't think of Jonah in that way, but I think by the time we're done this morning, hope that you will see this is an amazing love story. It also parallels another story that Pastor Sean has mentioned a couple of times recently, and that being the story of, well, the familiar parable of the prodigal son, more accurately called the prodigal father, but in particular this morning, the older brother, the one who refused to go into the party. This is a story about a man battling love, Jonah. 
a man wanting no part of what love has to offer. A man who on his playlist has that song from 1980, Love Stinks. Sounds like a typical made-for-TV movie, doesn't it? And actually, it's really close. There was a movie that went to the big screen about this story, the story of a man who was to offer love to somebody who was really unlovable. And the story was brought to the screen using a very health-conscious means, telling the story in vegetables, namely Veggie Tales. I don't know if some of you remember Veggie Tales and the story of Jonah. So that's sort of where we're going today. But the book of Jonah shows God's gracious concern for the whole world, the whole of creation, his power over nature, and the futility of running from him. I believe there is a wise alien that once said that running is futile, or something along those lines. Long story short, the Cliff Notes version, Jonah was a prophet of God. And his job was to speak to the people whatever God told him to say. Prophets were not really popular back then because a lot of times if they had to speak to the people, it's because things weren't going well with how the people were living. And it was his job to come in and speak God's word to them saying, you gotta straighten this out. But this situation was a little bit different. Um, Jonah was used to getting rejected, kind of like an IRS agent at a tea party rally, say. But this time, God is telling him to go to Nineveh. So let's read here uh, verses 1 through 3 of first book, in the book of Jonah, first chapter. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So when God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach that in 40 days it would be destroyed, it was kind of an unusual request from God or command from God. Because most of the time, when the prophets spoke, they spoke to God's people. It was their job to speak to the nation of Israel, help keep them straight, get them back on track. But this time, God is sending his man to a foreign nation, the nation of Assyria, and namely the city of Nineveh. He wanted him to go tell them that you got 40 days, then you're going to be destroyed. But as we read, Jonah cut and ran. So some of this could be due to the fact that Nineveh was 500 miles from Jonah's home. That's a long walk and a lot of pair of sandals. It'd take about a month to get there on foot. Perhaps he'd pre-booked a Mediterranean sea cruise that didn't want to lose his deposit. Also, a fact known about Nineveh at that time, it did not even have a Chick-fil-A. So he wasn't going. Well, maybe also it had something to do with Jonah knew how God works and moves. He knows of God's reckless love. He doesn't necessarily want to see this nation get blessed with God's reckless love. He used to preach destruction. That should have been a delight for Jonah as Nineveh being the capital of Assyria, the most powerful nation on earth at that time, 
was an avowed enemy of Israel. Their way of treating their guests that they captured was less than kind. I was going to fill you in on some of the details of how the Assyrians were known for their forms of torture, but my wife suggested that being right before lunch, I should probably be a little bit more vague. But needless to say, they were brutally barbaric in their treatment of their captors. Not a pleasant neighbor, not a pleasant people. This gives you one idea why Maybe Jonah didn't want to get involved in the way that Jonah was suspecting that God might get involved. He just as soon see them destroyed. Or also maybe Jonah was afraid that if he went there, he'd end up as one of those guys getting tortured, uh, getting killed. Not something you want to walk into voluntarily. So we'll take a look at what Jonah feared most in a few minutes, uh, remembering again our opening scripture, you are a compassionate, loving God, slow to anger. But Jonah catches a cruise. God sends a storm, and the sailors already know that Jonah is running from God because he told them so. You know, a little idle chatter in the pub before they sailed. But now they really want to know who Jonah is and who is this God because this storm has come up and they're gonna die. And they're trying to figure out what to do. Jonah tells them that he serves the God who created everything, including the storm that is threatening their lives. And then he bravely says, throw me overboard, you'll be okay. The sea will become calm. But these sailors had already gotten a glimpse of this God who's more powerful than any of their little gods. They did not want to upset him. They didn't want to go about killing a prophet of the God. So they cried out to the Lord. And this was their first deliberate prayer to the real God that they're just starting to get to know. Verse 14, it says, then they cried out to the Lord, oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So over the side Jonah goes. The seas grew calm. And I can imagine the reaction. Their eyes got really big, looked at each other. Dude. Verse 16 says, At this the men greatly feared the Lord, And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So here we have a group of sailors who have just met a God who is not capricious capricious or vengeful, but rather a God who had his eye on them. And not like, oh, you nasty sailors. But rather, I'll use the storm, a disobedient servant who is playing hide and seek with me to reveal myself to you and bring you life. This is another example of something that we as churchgoers can easily forget. And that God is interested in more than just his chosen people. He loves all of his creation, even sailors. So my apology to you Navy folk, but it's true. 
And how ironic that when Jonah thinks God is done with him, you know, he just went overboard, he is still ending up spreading the message of God, of God's love, that relentless love. So Jonah was running, or now swimming from God, what God had told him to do. Why? Is he trying to avoid seeing the wrath of God poured out on Nineveh? There's something else. So back, our text again says, God sends a huge fish to swallow Jonah, preserving his life, altering it at the same time. Chapter two of this book ends with a prayer of praise, thanksgiving, and a bit of repentance, all from deep inside the belly of the fish. Now I know there are times when I'm hungry and my, fin- my stomach is growling and it can get kind of loud and annoying. How do you think the fish felt? He swallowed his lunch and there's this guy talking from inside of him, um, just saying. Verse nine says, this is what Jonah was saying, but I with a song of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And now the story takes kind of another humorous turn when the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So throughout Jesus' time of ministry, he frequently quoted what we now call the Old Testament. Sometimes directly quoted, sometimes paraphrasing. And I believe one example is found here in Mark, chapter eight, verse 36. Jesus says, for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I think he is paraphrasing Jonah 2, verse 10 and maybe 11, not found in all the translations, but the whole passage would read something like this. Jonah commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah, or God commanded the fish, excuse me, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. For what shall it profit a fish if he eat the whole man and lose his own lunch? Anyway, Jonah, smelling like fish puke, and probably a bit bleached out, heads to Nineveh. He walks a day into the city, which takes him about a third of the way to the cross because it was a pretty big city, 120,000 people. So he walks into there and then stops and says, well, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Have a nice day. Heads back out of the city, waiting and watching for its destruction. And Jonah's message has the desired effect, but not Jonah's desired effect. It has the effect that God wanted in the first place. Chapter three, verse five puts it simply, the Ninevites believed God. From here, the story gets almost comical because not only does the king of Nineveh say, okay, we're gonna quit what we're doing and we're gonna fast and we're going to declare that all people fast and wear sackcloth. And sackcloth was not comfortable. It's kind of like burlap, and it was usually made from goat hair. And then he decrees that even the animals have to fast and wear goat hair. Not sure what the goats thought about that, but just a little weird there. But the king was serious, and his hopes are recorded for us. In verse 9, he says, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn 
from his fierce anger so we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. The King James Version of that verse uses the word repent instead of relent. And I want to take a look at that because, well, it frankly can make us a little uncomfortable, but it's more accurate to the story. We read, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn. But what it really says is, who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Repent? I looked everywhere in my study books related to words and verbiage in the Old Testament. I could not find the word relent anywhere in there. Evidently, repent is what they meant. It's a bit uncomfortable because of our understanding of the word. We've heard uh, Pastor Patricia speak on repentance. Pastor Sean spoke on it recently. The word metanoia, a complete change of mind, change of your heart and going the other way. We understand that because we understand we have something to repent of. Sin, turning from God, missing the mark. What does God have to repent of? Has he done evil? Has the Holy One sinned? But let's look at the Hebrew and see if God is maybe trying to tell us something else about his nature, how he sees us, and his posture towards us. The Hebrew for repent used here, and I'm not good at Hebrew pronunciations, is naham shub, N-A-C-H-A-M-S-H-U-B. And it means to be comforted by the changing of your mind. To be comforted by the changing of your mind. And in this case, the Ninevites and God both being comforted by the changing of his mind about destroying them. It could also show the pleasure, or dare I say joy, that God the Father gets in not needing to discipline or punish his people. Well, okay, that's his people. But these are Ninevites. They're not the chosen people. But remember again, it's all of God's creation that he loves. So this is what the king is saying. Maybe God will repent. The king in Nineveh doesn't know this God that Jonah speaks of, but he's heard of this God that Jonah speaks of. The whole area was familiar with this God who was known to rescue his people in crazy ways. So he figured listening to him would probably be a good idea, would be in everyone's best interest. And it says, God repented of evil. And that's what those words mean, but our modern translations often state those words quite differently. But God had compassion and did not bring upon them destruction. True but not the whole story. As with this posture towards us, it's not merely in not destroying us, but it's also in embracing us. So when we speak of relent, we usually mean it in a, well, all right, I guess I'll do that other thing. And I think one of the best examples that I've seen, and this was from pretty sure a documentary from Canada, 
of relenting and from a show called The Red Green Show. And if some of you watched that, you remember the man's prayer. I'm a man, I can change if I have to, I guess. That's relenting as we know of it, okay? If I have to, I guess. Repent, on the other hand, speaks of a total change of heart and mind turning the other way, and it's something we want to do, that the changee, just making up a word, chooses to do, not being forced upon them. When God asks us to repent, it's wanting to get our heart to the point where we voluntarily change, not just, well, if I have to, I guess. But each time you translate, when people translate scripture, they also interpret the scripture by their own filters. As much as they try not to, we are humans. We use our brains to do that, we need to. We bring our own stuff into it. So we bring along certain theological assumptions and judgments about what was meant, though some of them may not actually be in the original text. And this repent thing of God is one of those things. It's one of those things that I just like to ask him about when I see him. Okay, this is really confusing, but you said it. Throughout the Old Testament, God does a lot of repenting. The story of Noah, he repented of making man, creating us in the first place, decided to wipe us all out. There's many examples of God saying he repented throughout the Old Testament. So you can see why those that were translating scripture would be kind of, boy, he hasn't done anything wrong. Why does he need to repent? And it's very sensitive because God is sovereign who doesn't need to repent and a sovereign God who is unchangeable, doesn't change, and yet he changes his mind. It's right here. God repented of the evil. So I think Jonah is trying to sell, tell us something very important again about the nature of this God, about his posture towards his creation, his overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love. Verse 10 says, and God saw their works, that they repented, turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he said he would do unto them, and he did it not. So what does it mean God is saying that he repented of evil? The author and teaching pastor Shane Hips describes it like this. It's not too hard to picture a mother and a new baby and their interactions with each other. When the baby smiles, she scowls back, right? No, she smiles back. When the baby scrunches up his face, starts to cry, the mother's face changes to a look of concern. The parent is mirroring back what the child is doing. And this is an automatic response in a parenting relationship, a natural mirroring that takes place. And it establishes trust between a parent and the child. It creates a bond without words, letting the child know that there is a connection between the parent and the child. It shows empathy, understanding, that you are with the child. Without this connection, we know that the relationship doesn't grow in a good way. We carry this into adulthood. We mirror each other's feelings. If somebody comes up to you and they are angry 
especially at you, and you laugh, there could be discomfort experienced there. There may, may be some resulting bruising. Who knows? But we marry each other. We also share joy with each other. We weep with each other. This mirroring is a way to establish trust, deepen the connection with each other. It shows the other person, you are not alone. I'm going to be with you. I will meet you where you are at. And this is absolutely essential in any relationship. It's essential in our relationship with our Father God. What God is doing in this passage, I believe, this repentance back and forth is a divine mirroring in his people. The people of Nineveh repented of their evil and it was considerable. So what does God do? He repents of his evil. God doesn't need to repent, but he chooses to. And here, repentance is not just an act of compassion, but rather a humiliating act. Again, that's a little strange, God humiliating himself. This is God humbling himself for the sake of ensuring his people that they know they are not alone. This is not the cosmic judge standing above you waiting to declare your fate, but it's rather the father who comes down from the bench and stand next to you and says, I am here. So God is doing something that really only humans need to do, repenting. But God is humbling himself, and yet what he's doing here is really a foreshadowing of what he's going to do through Jesus 800 years later. In Philippians, Paul wrote this about Jesus. Philippians 6 through 2, or 2, 6 through 8. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God to be something grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus had no problem in saying, I don't need to act godlike. I can feel what you feel, experience what you experience. And that's why Jesus came, why God decided to take on a human body to be with us. Our Christmas songs that we sing, Emmanuel, just means God with us. And he's serious about that. We can barely comprehend God's posture towards us, but he is working to establish trust between us. He mirrors us to develop that trust. And his deep desire is to know that we are not alone, that we know we are not alone and we are not forgotten. It's about our sense of connection to him. Most of us pray for deliverance from things that are in our lives, and we probably need to. Some of us are going through some really difficult times. But God is saying to us that sometimes instead of merely removing these hard things, how about I come down there? Be with you in those things. Instead of delivering you from, I will enter in. 
Last February, I had three major back surgeries. A lot of you are familiar with that. Uh, two of them were planned. The third one was an emergency repair. Evidently, someone had left a socket wrench somewhere back there, and they had to get it back for their next procedure. So back in, went again. I spent eight days in the hospital, two blood transfusions, during which time I had certain feelings of distress and discomfort. In fact, there was a large amount of discomfort. However, one thing I never experienced was feeling alone, whether it was in hospital or when I went home, because my family and my friends always made sure someone was there with me at all times. Someone to help, to talk with, just to be there and let me know that I'm going to be okay even when I had serious doubts. I would have much rather not ever had to be there in the first place, but I was. But I was actually being delivered in that situation from my family and friends staying with me, visiting with me. Kind of like what God does for us. Jonah was needing deliverance. He's in the belly of a very large fish. He cried out to God to deliver him. And about the plight of Jonah and our plight, Rob Bell says this, we pray to be delivered from the storm and the fish, but as Jonah discovers, it often turns out to be the storm and the fish that delivers us. What do you want God to mirror back to you right now? What would you like his face to reflect? What do you want him to enter into with you? Are you angry? You want him to enter into that with you? He will. Are you sad and you want him to weep with you? He does. How about dancing with you? The Hebrew word for rejoice means to spin around under violent emotion. If anybody has seen me dance, they'd figure something like that's going on. That's why I play music. Dancing is, yeah, my wife can attest to that. But to spin around under violent emotion or basically to dance, that's what it's referring to. So Zephaniah 3.17 is more accurately translated this way. Yahweh, your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will dance over you in singing. It's not beneath God to do a happy dance for you. The Amplified Version of Scripture puts it this way. And I love this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love, making no mention of your past sins. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Wow. I want to re read to you a rewriting of this verse from a fellow named Dennis Jernigan. He's a Christian psalmist. He's a fully recovered homosexual. He's now a father of nine, big family. And he's a minister to the Lord. And I'm putting it up on the screen because I want you to be able to follow along with your eyes and also to ask God to open the eyes of your heart to truly see his posture towards you. 
Dennis's version of this reads like this. The eternal, self-existent God, the God who is three in one, he who dwells in the center of your being is a powerful, valiant warrior. He has come to set you free, to keep you safe and to bring you victory. He is cheered and beams with joy and takes pleasure in your presence. He has engraved a place for himself in you and there he quietly rests in his love and affection for you. He cannot contain himself at the thought of you and with the greatest of joy spins around wildly with anticipation over you. He has placed you above all other creations and in the highest place in his priorities. In fact, he shouts and sings in triumph, joyfully proclaiming the gladness of his heart in a song of rejoicing all because of you. That's amazing. God's posture towards us, so hard to understand. Harder sometimes to accept and to allow, but it's true. So ultimately, we have a God who has defied his very nature, or at least our understanding of his nature, so that we could know that we are not alone. And it's more than just having company. He is so deeply in love with us, with you. So back to Jonah and his response to God spraying the city of Nineveh. Here Jonah starts to sound a lot like the older brother from the story of the prodigal son that Jesus brought. The one who became angered when the father threw a huge bash for that low-life younger brother who had came home and kind of repented. And then Jonah offers a bit of comic relief when he speaks his deepest fears. When he sees the, the city of Nineveh turn to God and that God came down to them, he makes this kind of silly statement that none of us would ever say, and it's found in this verse here. It says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish, because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who repents from sending calamity, and that drives me crazy. Some scholars feel that Jonah wrote this book almost tongue-in-cheek. It's like 800 years before Jesus, one of the first stand-up comics. But Jonah is choosing to expose his feelings, his shortcomings, his prejudices, because we have so much we can learn from it. He shows himself crying and stomping his feet like a three-year-old who's throwing a fit. And a good author or movie producer will often end the story or a movie without resolving the conflict. They leave you saying, ooh, what do I do with that? At the end of the real movie about Jonah, he sheds more light on some of the difference between God's spokesperson and God. Jonah is waiting for the show in scorching heat. He's waiting to see Nineveh destroyed. God provides a vine to grow up and provide shade for him. Pretty nice. 
Then a worm comes along and makes a snack out of the vine, and it dies, and Jonah's back in the blazing sun again. And again, here's Jonah's response. Verse 8 says, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God says to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Jonah's response, I do. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this vine, though. You did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people, and these are people that I did create who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? Then the book ends, and the credits roll. Hmm, what do we do with that? But then the epilogue. Both Jonah and the eldest brother from the prodigal son story were confronted with the same responses from Father God. Both saw the reckless love of God in action. So did the king of Nineveh and the younger prodigal son. All were offered that reckless love. The king didn't understand it, but his fear and respect for this God that he heard about allowed him to receive the benefits of this love. The young son saw the dance and didn't understand that either, but he entered into it. Jonah pouted and said, just shoot me. The older son said, it's not fair, and refused the same love. Both felt that they had earned that love. They had earned their place. And yet they rejected it, missed out on great joy. As that last song we sang says, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down. It fights till I'm found and leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. The fruit of the Spirit that Paul spoke of is this love. It is this love that when Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men, that is what they were to use in their bait bucket. God's love, that's what draws people to him. And this love is deeply entwined with the rest of that fruit, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. The story about Jonah is about that kind of love. God enters into our repentance. We are comforted through his repentance. We are not alone or forgotten. May you get hooked on that same divine love and grace, that reflection of God in your life, in your mind, and in your heart, because according to God, you are his greatest catch. Let's pray. Father, you did all this for us. All you ask is that we offer ourselves back as a young child with our arms raised.
We need to do that regularly. Help us to do that, but thank you that we get to do that, that you see us as your greatest catch. Amen. All right, can you thank Bob for sharing this morning? Good word. Good word. I'm going to start calling him PB, Pastor Bob. <laughs> um, PBJ. <laughs> All right, would you just stand as we close um, today? I want to give you an opportunity if um, you, you've never said yes to the love of Jesus. You know God pursues us. He pursues us. He chases us. Runs after us. And whether you're here or whether you're watching online, um, uh, Holy Spirit, if he's been stirring something just in your mind uh, as, we've, as Bob's been sharing this morning or maybe even during worship that, you know, I that you need what he has to offer. He, he gives new life. He gives new, uh, a new breath. He, he chases after us to show us his incredible grace and mercy and his love. If that's you this morning with all the saints praying, nobody looking around with every head bowed and every eye closed, I, do, I just want to give you the opportunity to pray that prayer this morning. And it's not, a, not, the, not so much the prayer. It's just a, this is a moment of you saying, I want to follow you. So if that's you, um, would you just raise your hand? I'm the only one that's looking, and we just, I just want to agree with you this morning, all right? And it could be, be a re-surrender this morning, too. If you're watching online, we're praying with you. I want us all to pray this together, the house of the Lord, pray this together. Father God, I give you my life. All that I am is yours. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your unrelenting chase of me, you are my rescue. Today I surrender my life at the cross where you died for me and for all of my shortcomings, you pick me up and you give me new life and I am thankful. In your mighty name we pray, amen.